Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. I was in London last weekend on what I expect will be my last visit before the train wreck that is Brexit, and I was never more conscious of the old adage about Ireland and Britain being two countries divided by a common language. People I've known for decades are living in fear of the unknown as an existential threat to their nation plays out before them in real time. This is the first of a couple of podcasts that will touch on that subject, but of course there will be plenty of the usual discussion about media and creativity and journalism and what it's all about. While in London, I met writer and broadcaster Danny Robbins, whom I've known for a few years. Like me, he is married to a Swede. Unlike me, he is a brilliant and industrious comedy writer, and we met through his series The Cold Swedish Winter. The series was and is recorded on location here in Sweden, usually for one week at a time every year, and my job is to ensure that the practical things, from lunches to locations, run smoothly. But Danny is much more than just a funny man. His scripts crackle with humour and bristle with pop culture, but ultimately his most refined skill is in storytelling. While in London, of course, I didn't have microphones and that kind of thing with me, so we had to speak over the internet, and I started by asking him about his recent five-part podcast documentary for Audible, entitled Folsom Untold, in which he went behind the scenes of Johnny Cash's legendary live album. I started by asking where the original idea for the series came from. Kind of pragmatically from the fact that this big anniversary came up, it was 50 years since 1968 when the Folsom Prison gig happened. And um, I'd made a documentary for the BBC a few years back, which was about a couple of more obscure Johnny Cash prison gigs and basically discovered that he was this very passionate prison reformer who'd spent a lot of his life doing these free gigs and, and going to prisons all over the place, including actually in Sweden. His his one and only um, prison gig outside the States was in Sweden at Österorka prison, just wow. outside Stockholm. Um, but he, he'd given a lot of his time for prisoners, and, and there's all these amazing stories about him kind of like, like turning up at a prison and just playing some songs kind of impromptu just to kind of entertain people. You know, he, he was someone who really seemed to care about guys inside and believed that, you know, there was better ways of dealing with, with crime and rehabilitation. Um, so I was interested in all that, and then this big anniversary came up, and I just had an idea to tell the story of the Folsom Prison gig as if it was a kind of true crime story. Uh, you know, I mean, true crime is obviously kind of the dominant uh, genre within podcasting, you could say. And I felt it was a story that really fitted that that brilliantly. And you know, this, the great backdrop of Cash being this kind of broken figure who was kind of on a down, uh, you know, he was this kind of drug-addled guy whose best days were past him. And then through doing this Folsom Prison gig, which the bosses at Columbia Records said was crazy and, and wouldn't work, and through doing the gig, he turned himself into this global icon. But along the way, he also had this really interesting relationship with a guy called Glenn Shirley, who was an armed robber who was in Folsom, Wrote, an, uh, wrote a song for the album, and then Cash helped him get parole and tried to turn him into a Nashville country music star. And, and it kind of, you know, there's a, a sort of really interesting but quite sad story behind that. So I, I took those elements and I, and I basically turned them into this kind of cliffhanger 
kind of fast-paced, exciting story, um, you know, told in five episodes, which, um, yeah, which, you know, was a, a great fun to make and, and took me all across the states from California through Memphis to Nashville, you know, tracking down a, a great story. Yeah, it was an absolutely amazing listen because I remember when you told me that it came out, I was going, okay, and I signed up for, I think it's Audible is the, the channel that's distributing. That's right, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I signed up for that and I downloaded it all. I was going, okay, I'll listen to the first episode and then towards the, the end of the first episode, you sent me a text going, what did you think? I was going, oh, I can't talk now. I have to listen to the second one, you know, because it really was that sort of, it reminded me of the old Flash Gordon movies that you used to see, you know, those sort of half hour things that were said. Okay, and there, yeah. there was always a cliffhanger at the end of it and you go, oh, I want to hear the next thing. But did you have that in mind? And what was the process of making it like? Because I would assume you weren't on the ground for, for that long in America. It's not like you were six months, you know, retracing Johnny Cash's steps. So how did you go about writing it and sort of, you know, uh, sort of creating the skeleton to begin with? And then what did you do when you got to America? Well, I think the, the crucial thing, which helped uh, because we were on, very short on both time and money, was that I was really steeped in this story. I was really steeped in Cash. I'd researched it a lot for the documentary that I've made in the past and I've just been a huge cash fan since I was a teenager read a lot of books about him so I, I knew my stuff you know and I, and I was going out there armed with a lot of kind of you know quite detailed knowledge I guess and um, we just we packed a lot into a week we drove a thousand miles we flew 24 hours worth of flights in, in about six days seven days and um, we had some great interviewees. We met a lot of people, some of them in their 80s now, who were there at the time, who were there at the gig or who knew Cash and Glenn Shirley, the armed robber, really well. And just were very lucky. We just, you know, any documentary is only ever as good as its um, interviewees. And we just had some great interviewees. We met people who were brilliant storytellers. Um, I think, you know, it's that thing, like, I mean, it's Louis Theroux has made a great career out of this, but you go to America and you suddenly find people who want to talk to you and who are great, eloquent storytellers. There's something about um, Americans that seems to lend themselves to just being great d documentary interviewees. But, um, yeah, I mean, we packed a lot into that week. And, and um, then coming back over, I spent a lot of time kind of weaving those interviews into this story and, and telling you know, the, uh, through a kind of mixture of my narration and also using, you, you'll have heard some drama reconstruction and yep. we had some actors who brought sections to life and who played Cash and played Shirley. Um, so, yeah, we sort of chucked the kitchen sink at it, I guess. But it was a real <laughs> labour of love, you know. It, it certainly, you know, the, the amount of um, money I was paid did not justify the amount of time I put into it. It, it took kind of months of, of long, long days and long, long nights putting it together. Yeah, it's amazing. I was actually speaking to a friend of mine there recently and he was saying, if you sort of work out what we get paid per hour when we work on these things, you'd probably be better off at Starbucks. You'd certainly make more oh, money yeah. if you were doing know, that, you know. Yeah. But again, it is the love of it. And when you get this great story and these great characters put in front of you, you kind of feel that you have to. I mean, th this to you, obviously, for your love of Johnny Cash was something that you really wanted to do. But the way I perceive you, Dan, is you sort of swirl around between the worlds of drama and comedy and journalism. How would you describe Describe yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I guess I describe myself as writer and broadcaster, which sounds kind of sufficiently vague. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, my background is in comedy very much. You know, I, I learned my trade doing Edinburgh festivals. I mean, I, I started doing stand up when I was about 15 years old in the, in the northeast of England, playing in pubs and clubs and 
kind of you know baptism of fire doing that around like Newcastle and Middlesbrough and Sunderland Hartlepool but um I, I um yeah I, I I moved into comedy doing sketch comedy topical comedy for Radio 4 and um you know working in TV writing sitcoms and then in recent times I've, I've found myself kind of wanting to I, I guess kind of push beyond just telling jokes and and have found myself moving into drama, writing plays, and, and also into more journalistic stuff, t- telling kind of more serious stories, stories of a punch sometimes. So I feel like humor is always a part of what I do. And, and it, you know, you'll, you'll see in Fulton Untold, there are many moments of humor. But I guess I feel like we're living in times now where there's a sort of um, compulsion on an artist or, or you know, a writer or a um, broadcaster to, to maybe do something more than just you know kind of um offering entertainment i, I feel like you know I, me personally where i'm at in my life i feel like i want to sort of challenge myself but also challenge my audiences a bit and, and it makes me feel i want to kind of um do stuff make stuff that says something without wanting to kind of sound pretentious or, or highfalutin did you find and i don't mean this as a sort of an insult to anybody who's involved in, in the business but did you find that you sort of outgrew comedy that you needed a sort of a new frame of reference to tell these stories in i, I don't know about outgrew it. i mean i i think you know I, I got an email the other day from someone who'd listened to my radio Four comedy series the cold swedish winter and um it told me that it, she'd been listening to it whilst giving birth and um, and it had helped her through this really difficult birth and and, and she'd had moments where she no I mean it was kind of serious in a way she, she had moments where she was quite scared and felt she might lose the baby and, and she'd been listening to my show and it had calmed her down and made her feel good and it made me realize that actually you can be as somebody who writes comedy you can be a bit down on yourself and you can kind of um dismiss it as something that's very frivolous and facetious and just kind of here today, gone tomorrow. But actually, comedy, particularly in the times we live in, does have a real role in terms of just pumping out some positivity. And, and you know, there's nothing wrong with being feel good. You know, um, I think we need that. We need that more than ever, you know. But but I also think that, um, you know, that comedy is, you know, these are, these are really changing times. I mean, if you look at the way comedy is changing and, and seeing the kind of questions that comedy is having to ask itself now, I, I think... I always think it's it's one of the most immediate ways of, of kind of sorting people into which trench they're in. You know, we're, mm. we're living in times when you could sort of say we're living through a kind of ideological civil war, like globally, but certainly in the UK where I'm based, you know, with Brexit at the moment, you you feel very, very much, that, I mean, it, it, it is it's civil war, you know, and, and, and comedy very quickly sorts us, you know, like what we find offensive, what we laugh at, you know, a, a really quick indicators uh, and um and 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 you know comedy can sort of have a huge power i mean if you look at twitter and the impact of you know like you know jokes to hurt or a joke gone wrong and the kind of self-destructive thing of somebody telling the wrong joke i mean it, it's powerful stuff and i kind of feel like with power comes responsibility that the comedians have to kind of play a role and ask themselves you know that that um kind of classic phrase, are you punching up or punching down? You know, is your target a justified target or, or not, you know? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, we're living in changing times and, and comedy has to ask itself a lot of, of hard, tough questions. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like, you know, as a comedian, I, I sort of found myself going into sort of more serious pastures, you know, into drama and into journalism because, 
you know, th those questions are leading me in that direction. It's fascinating that what you said about uh, civil war there, because there was two comedians in Sweden here who were having a sort of a battle over that young climate activist, uh, Greta Thunberg, I think her name is, and she's oh, on yes, strike okay. every yeah. Friday. And one of them yeah. made a, a relatively tasteless joke about her, and then other comedians hopped on. And, you know, the trenches were immediate. You know, this was going back to 1915 and sort of, you know, going over the top of this guy. And it happened, mm -hmm. so it's not just Brexit. It seems to be happening everywhere, and in the States too. Who were your uh, comic heroes when you were growing up and setting out on the sort of stand-up trail at 15 who did you look up to were they you know the sort of uh, lenny bruce bill hicks kind of thing or was it a more traditional uh, ealing comedy background yeah no i mean i would say that as a kid as a younger kid i was very drawn to sitcom and um you know i mean very kind of unfashionably and un uncoolly kind of things like ronnie corbett sorry and <laughs> um brush strokes and quite a few things that kind of will seem really quite naff now but yeah. I think I liked a world that was peopled by comic characters, and, and I think I was drawn more towards um, kind of dialogue and, and sketches and sitcom than to stand-up uh, as a kid. And um, I think in terms of kind of stand-up performance, I was drawn towards uh, double act a lot, you know, the kind of a Morecambe and Wise or, you know, Lee and Herring as a kind of um, a pair who were kind of really big when I was a, like a student. I, I loved them. Um, I liked banter. And... Um, you know, I like repartee, and and um, and then you know people like Chris Morris and and, and Steve Coogan, Alan Partridge, all, all those kind of things were huge influences. Um, Blackadder as well, but yeah, I, I think um, I, I've never been a stand-up buff. I've always found myself drawn more towards narrative comedy. Yeah. And was that the sort of comedy? Did you do sort of you know jokes-based comedy, or did you do character-based comedy, or what kind of thing did you like doing yourself when you were doing stand-up? As a stand-up, I very quickly moved into character comedy, and and the thing that kind of brought me the most success on stage was a character called DJ Danny that I did at the Edinburgh Festival a few times, and um, and then kind of ultimately kind of ended up getting a Radio Four series out of out of doing that, and and he was a a failed kind of a fr frustrated DJ, a teacher by day, DJ by night. Um, kind of nerdy character. So I, I think, yeah, I, I sort of quickly realised that I wasn't going to be one of these people who made a lot of mileage by talking about themselves on on stage. I needed a character to hide behind. Um, I really admire stand-ups. You know, I think it's a, an amazing, brilliant, gladiatorial thing to stand up there and, and you know, be funny for an hour just about yourself, by yourself. But, um, you know, that, that wasn't particularly me. I kind of quickly kind of moved into wanting to write characters and scenarios and sketch writing became sitcom writing for me. Uh, you sort of lead an interesting <clears throat> existence now because, you know, uh, we've worked together on the cold Swedish winter and I've marveled about how you could write this sort of four part series and everything ties in together. And the next thing I know you're in America making a radio documentary or you're writing for an airline magazine, you're doing travel pieces <laughs> for them, this kind of thing, you know, but uh, yeah. what does it mean to you to be based in London? Do you feel that you have to be based there? Do you feel that you have more opportunities there or, or why do you continue to live there? I think that's a question that I do ask myself and probably now more than ever uh, you know with brexit approaching and you know i have a swedish wife and half swedish children and you know we have asked ourselves if our long-term future lies in london but um i mean at the moment the way i work is still very collaborative you know i'm making podcasts or you know writing <coughs> sorry writing plays and, and, and sitcoms it's 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 not just me sitting in my shed in the garden it's like um you know, working with script editors and producers and 
and you know with the podcasts working with you know lots of people musicians and editors and all sorts and at the moment for me you know those people are based in London I'm based in London and that makes it very easy and makes it work very well and um, I'm not saying I couldn't do sort of quite a lot of my job based somewhere else or you know wherever I was in the world but certainly there's enough of it here in London at the moment that keeps me here and also I you know I, lo I love London I find it a very inspiring place I feel like you know you're at the heart of uh, kind of a, a you know the beating heart of a lot of stuff here in London and um, you know there's that old line um, you know when a man is tired of London he is tired of life and I think that kind of that haunts me a little bit that I sort of think if, if I ever move from London is that kind of you know is that you sort of somehow kind of giving up on on the um, kind of excitement and the rat race I don't know I think, I think London's addictive it's an addictive place you know it's, it's hard to give up yeah, that's why I tend to get out of it as quickly as I can, because you know, it's, it's, I find it a lot like New York, actually. You know, the first time I sort of wind up in Manhattan for a while, you go, yes, let's fucking take this on by the horns kind of thing. And, you know, but if you get into that, you know, if you get into that sort of rat race of it and that kind of thing, it's brilliant fun, but it's exhausting as well. Do you find London a very competitive place for what you're trying to do? Because obviously Radio 4 and these other outlets, they only have a certain amount of budget. So do you find yourself, you know, elbow to elbow with other creative people trying to get your share of that? Um, I, I guess so. I mean, we, it's funny. We live in these times where there are more opportunities than ever, in theory, with all the kind of many new channels and outlets. You know, the kind of I, I heard the term "fang" the other day, which stood for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, which makes it sound quite nicely sinister. You know, <laughs> I'm working for Fang, but um, uh, you know, I think there's so many opportunities out there. But at the same time, money is being squeezed and squeezed, and it feels like there's less and less money. And, you know, as somebody who makes stuff, you're being offered less and less money each time. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's competitive and it isn't. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities out there, but there's a lot of people competing for them. Um, I, I feel like it's quite a supportive world, though. I, I do feel like, you know, particularly the kind of audio world, the kind of, you know, um, podcasts and radio is supportive and people help each other out. And, you know, podcasts, as you'll know, are kind of, very much kind of promoted by and driven by appearing on other people's podcasts and talking about other people's podcasts on your show and you know I think that's a huge part uh, that, that um, you know the kind of teamwork and the kind of nice networks so um, you know I feel like it's I don't feel like it's competitive in the sense that like you know I, I kind of imagine like you know being an actor in Hollywood is kind of yeah. like you know people literally kind of wanting to stab each other in the back to get ahead I, you know but <laughs> But uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's obviously you know it is a, a hard life in some ways, yeah. But now that you're working for Fang as the that's a brilliant <laughs> acronym. That's a, you know now that you're one of the top guys there. <laughs> where do you see this headed for you? Because you know you're coming off a whole bunch of projects that you've done last year. But uh, funnily enough, I can't remember us talking about what you're doing at the moment. So what's the next thing for for Danny Robbins? Well, I, I'm writing another play at the moment. I, I did a play last summer um, in London with Les Dennis and. Um, Blake Harrison from the Inbetweeners, and um, you know that that was quite successful, and hopefully we're we're going to take that out on tour this year. And um, I'm writing another play at the moment as well, so I'm really enjoying that. That's very fulfilling, kind of writing longer form and and and, and more dramatic stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you know the the danger with me is to I don't want to be a sort of jack of all trades, master of none. I don't want to sort of spread myself too too thin. So. It's about sort of what I'm going to focus on in the future, I guess. I, I'm finding I'm really enjoying doing things that are still funny but more dramatic. And yeah. um, 
and I've loved podcasting. You know, my show Haunted, which was real life ghost stories, did well, and we're hopefully bringing that back this year as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I enjoyed that. I'd be very happy if I could just kind of make a life between doing kind of interesting podcasts and, and writing, you know, plays and kind of TV comedy drama. I'd, I'd be very happy, you know. So. That's kind of that's kind of the way I see myself going. I had a, a question from one of the subscribers to this podcast, and they were saying, you know, would, at some point in the future, would you talk about sort of the work-life balance in media and creation? I was going, that's going to be the shortest mm. fucking podcast ever because there is none. <laughs> you know, I feel that every time I'm doing anything, it's always related to to what I do. I end up, you know, if I'm reading a book, I'm going to end up writing about something to do. You know, that kind of thing that you're sort of switched on, yeah, twenty-four yeah. hours a day. How do you find that? Because it is like a competitive marketplace. Do you find that you have time to? do things just for fun or do you find yourself in the same way as me sort of being stimulated by stuff and go oh I could do a podcast about that or oh I could write a play or I could do you know one of the many things that you can do about it yeah definitely I, I would agree with that and I, I think I think it's a very obsessive business I think when you're uh, you know writing or making stuff you are inevitably always thinking about it you can't shake it it's not like a nine-to-five thing that you can switch off mm. so you know, it's hard. I mean, like like you, I've got a family, and and um, you're kind of keenly aware of the work-life balance, and and trying to make sure that you're um, not somebody who kind of ends up becoming a workaholic. And I think I'm I'm quite good at compartmentalizing. Even though I've got things ticking away in my brain, I'm quite good at sort of switching that off and playing with the kids, you know, and and whatever. I you know, but um, it, it, yeah, it's obsessive. And like when I was making the cash program. I found myself working till two o'clock in the morning quite a lot and being totally kind of, you know, overtaken by it, you know. So, um, you know, it's hard. I guess you have to do bursts when you're like that and then kind of yeah. bursts when you're kind of working on a more n- normal footing. Yeah, just as, um, a, as a tip to those who are listening to this podcast, Danny's series, which you did for BBC Radio uh, 4 called The Cold Swedish Winter, there's, was that five series now or four series? Four series so far, right? We're on series four now, yeah. 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 Uh, but there has been this thing where, like, basically the entire cast and crew arrives over to Stockholm and uh, the first night we all wait for Danny to finish the script <laughs> because there's, all, <laughs> there's always this thing where Danny wants to change it just a little bit and then that's fine, we can print it all out and we can deal with it then but that tends to happen you know you could be sort of working until one or two o'clock in the morning and then you know the actors are arriving at nine to, to start recording the following day so it is a oh sort God, of a, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean no, but, i mean worst, worst case scenario i think i found myself sometimes there were one or, one or two times i found myself working till six in the morning having two hours sleep and getting up at eight o'clock you know and, and um God. yeah i don't know I mean, you know but you can kind of do that in periods when you're driven by and fueled by a mixture of kind of excitement about the thing you're doing and, and fear that it might be a failure. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, when you know you've got to deliver a, a series and you haven't written it, it's, it's a pretty good motivator to write, you know. Yeah. People sometimes ask, ask me, like, you know, how do you motivate yourself? You know, or if I, if I worked from home, I'd never be able to kind of sit down and, and, and focus. But actually, you know, when you've got to deliver it, you, you know, you just do, you know, it kind of all kicks in and the adrenaline powers you through. Yeah, a, a deadline and a blank page are the two most threatening things in my life at this point. You know? But it is, it's if the same. Somebody once asked me, that, that somebody said, um, like, you know, do you enjoy writing? And I think another writer I, I know once said he enjoyed having written 
Yeah. And I think that that's definitely the case. I mean, I think with all these things, you know, you, you love it when it's done, when it's made, but the actual process sometimes is how. It can be really difficult. I mean, I was going to compare it to when I go to the Olympics and the World Cup or that kind of thing. And when I leave here with my suitcase under my arm, I literally have no expectations of sleeping for the next three weeks so that anything I do get is a bonus. And like you say, you can survive as long as it's fun and as long as, you know, you have the, the, the great um, sort of fun and games of having this experience and acquiring all these things, then telling the story. And then you come back and you're completely dead after it. But there is that sense of satisfaction because you've delivered something, you know. Um, yeah, when, totally. When we were talking there in London, recently uh, I did an, an interview with Tim Sparv the Finland captain and uh, we were waiting on comment from FIFA before we could put the story out but I really really enjoyed the, the, like, the whole process of writing the story and you don't often do that when you work with news because sometimes it's just really boring stuff that mm -hmm. you have to do you know but you seem to be able to, to work on projects that like the Johnny Cash thing you were saying you've loved Johnny Cash since he was a teenager is there anything else out there that you've loved since you were teenagers that you would absolutely love to make? Well, I think yeah, I find myself, I have these passions and um, I mean, Ghosts was another big one. I made my series Haunted and we're going to come back with that this year. And that is talking to people who believe they've seen ghosts, which mm. is something that's always fascinated me. And um, I think taps into a bit the fact that I was brought up an atheist by a mum who had been a Catholic and, and that belief always hovered just outside my experience. You know, like I, I'd go to my grandparents' house and see the Sacred Heart and the books about the Pope and so on, but, it, you know, it wasn't anywhere in my life, you know. So yeah. I think belief and, um, you know, the, the kind of, you know, that's led me into kind of the realms of the supernatural, that kind of thing. Um, so that's a big one. Um, and um, music has always played a huge part. So, I mean, I, I'm interested in telling other stories about music. We're kind of cooking up some more ideas along the lines of the cash stuff of kind of taking a story about music and telling it like a cliffhanger. Yep. Um, but, yeah, you know, and, and I mean, at the moment, I kind of find myself constantly sort of uh, dealing with a lot of the things I write are about father-son relationships as well. And um, I think that's partly the fact that I have a bad relationship with my own dad and also that I have now become a dad and I've got two sons. And yeah. so, you know, things like that. I mean, becoming a parent has kind of provided a huge amount more creative ammunition you know i definitely feel like i've changed as a writer since becoming a parent i still remember the, the line that you wrote on facebook when your your son was your second son was born and you said i know no i now know the difference between having a pet and having a zoo yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah, still fall around the place at lab like that. have yeah. you any interest in in film or video as a medium dan well i mean i've done a lot of work in tv you know writing um TV series. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of in, in recent times, I've found myself working more in audio. And that's not necessarily been totally by design. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I do some jobbing work, kind of doing TV stuff, you know, writing on other people's TV shows. Uh, you know, I, in the back in the day, I used to do a lot of things like panel shows and, and you know, kind of all that kind of jobbing gag writing. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, yes, I mean, I, I do find myself pitching ideas and kind of pushing things for telly as well. Um, film I ha is, a, is a, a world I've never kind of made forays into. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I admire, really admire people who kind of work in film and, and they're sort of, they're kind of telling stories that way. But that's something that I haven't kind of 
you know, probably cracked and maybe I'm a bit too long in the tooth now to kind of make that leap. But I don't know. Who knows? I wouldn't say that. I was working on a TV project recently and what has struck me is the amount of time it takes to get anything done. And that's related to the amount of money it costs to do anything. You know, so there's a huge risk when you have a sort of a crew of 15, 20, 50 people standing around a street that's been blocked off just for you and everything has to be perfect, you know. And I mean, I honestly don't know if I have the patience to keep, you know, doing something dramatic for TV because, you know, if you do something on a podcast or if you do something like that, it just seems to be it's much more deliverable it's much more immediate you know you go you do your story you put it out there whereas tv there's far too many cooks involved in it but with the amount of video out there now and that kind of thing is it something that you feel you should be doing more of uh, just to keep au fait with it or is it something that you're kind of happy to leave where it is i, I don't know i mean i, I think I, I do love the kind of the beauty of telling a story through audio because i think that you get an intimacy you know i i, I think that people I, I guess this is from my own experience. I feel like I connect with podcasts in a more, you know, kind of, I, I get more obsessive about them, I guess, than I do about mm. television. You know, when you find a podcaster, and I'm particularly a fan of true crime podcasts, when, when you get one that you love, I, I feel like I eat that up and devour that in a way that I don't with television in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like you can get things out of people in audio sometimes that you that you might not get out of them with a camera poked in their face um little intimate moments that um you know that, that maybe they're kind of more unguarded in I, I don't know maybe or maybe it's just that i'm sort of more familiar with this medium but but i do i do love uh, that as a way of telling stories and the freedom that gives you and um and yeah i mean obviously it, it's a sort of a way of making things like you say without sort of lots of cooks spoiling broth you know so it does suit the kind of um <laughs> sort of the obsessive kind of uh, you know perfectionist that I am, you know, but um, which I sometimes worry if 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 I have found myself sort of just working in a medium that suits kind of like the kind of lone wolf kind of unibomber kind of thing of just locking yourself <laughs> in a room and editing lots of material by yourself, you know. I think we're gonna, um, we're gonna have to put that in your profile now, Danny, know, Danny know, Robinson, the unibomber of media. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, I, I feel like it's really exciting times for audio. I think. The kind of the, the podcast revolution, the podcast boom has kind of really kind of thrown so many interesting things out there now. And, you know, like I'm someone who's worked in radio kind of all my career. And now I feel like, you know, m making podcasts, there's so many interesting stories out there and, and, and different ways of telling stories. And, you know, it's like it's like a kind of straight jacket has come off. You know, there was a certain way of kind of making a BBC radio documentary. Mm. And now, you know, you feel like there's loads of stories out there that would never have managed to make it into a kind of radio documentary that are now kind of yielding brilliant kind of long-running 10-part series, you know. Mm. So um, so I, I feel like it's exciting, rich times. I think the challenge is obviously how to make money out of it. I yeah. think, you know, it's still the Wild West and, um, you know, getting people to give you a decent budget for a podcast is not easy and, and then, you know, making that money back for them is not easy, you know. I mean, I've just made a series for Audible, which is interesting because it's a very different model. It's the subscriber model like Netflix. You know, it's, Audible is Amazon's podcast wing, uh, well, audiobooks wing, and they are making Audible's originals now, which is like, you know, Netflix where it's driven by the, the sort of, you know, the money of people signing up and becoming subscribers. So yep. so that that's interesting, and that's a very different model. You know, the stuff I've done before was all kind of driven by advertising and, and um, by the amount of downloads you got. But um, I, I think, you know, it, it's new times. It's, it's um, you know, we're all still trying to work out the best way to do it. Would you ever take a job with anyone or do you prefer to stay freelance forever and ever and ever? I mean, I've been freelance my whole life, so I kind of can't imagine 
not being that. Um, you know, I, it feels kind of very natural to me now. And I, and I like, I love the flexibility. I love the fact that it allows me to spend time with my kids and to be very flexible about that, you know, in terms of like being able to sort of pop in and go into their assembly in school and that kind of thing. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, I find that it's, you never know what's around the corner. It's, it's, it's without wanting to sound cliche, it's never dull. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of this podcast because there's a little bit of a surprise coming there. Remember, it is a listener-supported podcast. You don't have to pay for it as all my journalism on Patreon is free. But for the price of a beer or a cup of coffee every month, you can help me keep the lights on. Go to patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm and sign up so that together we can keep making great independent journalism. But listen all the way to the end. If we move on to uh, Brexit, <laughs> what, yes. is, is, is it a laughing matter for you? Is Brexit a laughing matter? Um, gosh, well, I mean, on one level, not at all, because I've got a, a wife, a Swedish wife at home who has been weeping about it and who has been depressed for the last two years about about feeling that her future has been stolen from her and everything that she planned for has gone out the window. So on one level, not at all. Um but at the same time, you know, if you are somebody who works in comedy, then this is something that you can't ignore. This is something that you've got to deal with and talk about. Um, I found myself writing a play over the last few years, which was put on last summer called End of the Pier, which was about a father and son pair of comedians. And, and it basically explored racism. And it, it kind of was a play about Brexit, but it never mentioned the B word. Yeah. I was very keen that it wouldn't actually mention the word Brexit because I thought that would kind of then, you know, lock it in, in a certain time and, and make it very much a play about Brexit. But, you know, it was dealing with a lot of the issues of Brexit Britain. And um, I just feel like, you know, the key thing for me is that you, you have to... Um, you have to deal with the anger. There's a huge amount of anger out there. Mm. And that's anger from both sides. That's anger from people who voted Remain and feel like, you know, we're going to hell in a handcart. And it's also anger from the people who voted for Brexit. You know, the people who kind of, you know, I grew up in the northeast of England and, and there you've got kind of communities of like third generation unemployed people who, you know, had the mining taken away from them, had shipbuilding taken away from them and feel like screwed and shafted and abandoned by successive governments, both conservative and labor. And there's huge amounts of anger there. And so as a comedian, as a writer, you've got to process that anger, but without kind of, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap that I think a lot of comedians do fall into of just saying everybody who voted Brexit is stupid. And I feel like that's the worst thing you could do with this argument. That, that's the thing that's going to most definitely push us into this very binary thing of two sides, this kind of civil war. You have to kind of explore and try and understand why people voted for it. And, you know, I mean, geez, without wanting to sound evangelical, like, you know, you, you have to kind of want to try and talk people out of that position. I, I sort of felt like with my play, um, you know, I was kind of on a mission to an extent. I wanted to kind of say things that would make people reconsider and, and, and think again about, you know, some some of the things that, that made them vote Brexit. I wanted to do something that would appeal to both people on the left and on the right, but kind of challenge people and ask difficult questions. Have you seen anything, you know, if we take, you know, big comedy as being like big pharma, have you seen anything in comedy that has helped or hindered the debate? Well, I think what I see is a lot of people wanting to deal with 
immigrant stories and, and wanting to deal with the immigrant experience now. And, and um, you know, I feel like um, that, I mean, the, the, I think what the good side, the, the, pro, the pro side of, of um, you know, there's been this big push for diversity in, um, in the UK. And the, the pro side of that is now people being allowed to tell stories that weren't previously getting access. You know, you, you're sort of seeing like some, some great things like Hannah Gadsby's Netflix special, um, you know, and, and you know, lo lo lots of um, comedians coming through in the UK from a kind of BAME background, from a, you know, an ethnic minority background who are now not just being kind of pushed into other people's projects where it used to be like, you know, oh my God, this is an all white cast. We've got to find a black person. Yeah. Quickly push them into that role. That, 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 that character, they can be black, you know. You know, that, that's what diversity was. And I think now it, that's changing and people are being, allowed to tell their stories and I think you know that that is brilliant and, and you know hearing kind of voices from a diverse backgrounds and hearing immigrant voices is is one of the best antidotes to the kind of you know the racism and the, the anti-immigrant sentiment that has driven Brexit so I think you know that that's that's brilliant I mean I think in, in terms of dealing with Brexit and comedy I think it, it is tricky because you know, it is something that a lot of people on both sides of the debate find hugely upsetting and, and hugely kind of um, anger inducing. And so to go and sit in a comedy club or, or, you know, to watch comedy at home and have somebody talking about this, I think it, it's hard. It still sort of feels too raw in some ways for people, um, you know, too to, to raw to kind of process. But um, yeah, it's a, real, it's a real challenge. I think, you know, I see a lot of stand-ups talking about it on Facebook about how you deal with this fact that um you know your audience is not going to be purely remainers you know there will be people who voted leave in your audience and then some places you go it might be a majority leave audience and how do you deal with that how do you sort of you know either kind of push your own agenda or or you know do you do you hide your own agenda you know sometimes i feel like you know the bbc actually i've got to say that i do feel like there is a pressure at the beep to not be taking an anti-brexit agenda and, and we made a a comedy series, uh, sorry, a comedy viral video in the summer for the Cold Swedish Winter, my Radio 4 sitcom, which was about why Sweden is better than Britain. Yeah, and we were, told to cut, well, yeah, we were told to cut lots of the Brexit references from it, you know. So, um, you know, I feel like there is a pressure to, 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 like, to not talk about Brexit from certain sources. There's one or two of them still survived, though, didn't they? If I remember rightly. Uh, I think, or am I, I saying know. that I mean, just because I was there? Maybe one kind of innocuous reference, but certainly there were quite a few Brexit-related jokes that yeah. that we were told to cut as a result of you know kind of BBC compliance, you know. So it's kind of like that yeah. don't, don't mention yeah, the war episode of Faulty Towers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th I think I think so. Yeah, but it, it really is an amazing thing. But, but if you look at it's kind of easy to make fun of some of the Leave side, uh, specifically Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson, that kind of thing. Do you, is there anything to be said by having a go at them being sort of almost caricatures of Tory Britain? Or, you know, is it better to sort of go for the, go for the issues and create a discussion around that instead? Well, I think what we're clearly seeing is that the whole thing is much more about class than race. And, and that, you know, the whole... Kind of anti-immigrant um, side of, of Brexit, you know, the kind of racism that has driven Brexit is this brilliant smokescreen for all of these rich people who are making huge amounts of money out of out of um, you know Britain potentially leaving the EU, and um, you know racism is a rich man's invention. You know, I uh, had this really interesting chat with a black academic who um, who uh, advised on my play in the summer, where he, he told me that. 
through his research, he figured that racism has pretty much been invented by the conquistadors who came over to South America. Mm. And it was as a justification for stealing all the gold, you know, that you, you kind of pray the people you're stealing the gold from as being, you know, kind of subhuman. And, and then, you know, it's okay for you to take the gold. And I sort of still feel like, you know, racism is this, is this justification. Um, you know, it, it's this great tool for the, for the rich, you know, that you can kind of persuade all the poor white people that it's the fault of the poor brown people. And then, you know, that, that is a great smokescreen to hide the fact that it's you, that you know, the kind of the elite, the rich kind of upper classes who've been consistently shafting working class people over decade after decade after century, you know? Um, so I, I feel like that, you know, that, that's the big debate to be had. And, and, you know, you know, class has always played a big role in comedy within Britain and, you know, within culture and society and political life. And, and, I feel like Brexit pushes that to the fore yet again, you know, and, and like you say, you know, people like Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg are, are caricatures, but the, the, the scary thing is that they carry this incredible kind of demagogic power and, and that, um, you know, actually there are huge chunks of working class Britain who are, you know, kind of seeing those guys as, as people to follow. And, and you know, it it's sadly feels like that kind of that line from the First World War about, lions being led by donkeys you know it feels yeah. like you know the, these terrible people who i guess you know the, the danger with both those guys is that they have become comic characters and that that has disguised their their potency and their power as as, as kind of really malign forces in uk life you know that we were laughing about boris johnson you know laughing with boris johnson on have i got news for you and that kind of allowed him to sort of sneak through the back door and, and you know, do some serious damage to the to the UK. Yeah, well, I suppose the same thing has been sort of uh, mirrored in the United States of America, where people laughed at Trump until that point where he was elected president. And he, you know, he got away with saying more and more and more outrageous things, you know, because the way it struck me, Dan, was that in in the England of the 90s, so to speak, you know, the Irish weren't particularly welcome there, thanks to the actions of the IRA and this kind of thing. But, um, you know, the, the, the rhetoric seemed to have changed there for sort of, you know, 10 or 15 years post Britpop. And it was a very sort of diverse society and a very accepting society. And now it's kind of gone back to where it was in, you know, the sort of the early 80s skinhead football hooligan culture. Um, where do you see this wind? up will we ever able to actually just laugh about brexit as something that happened or is this going to be a sort of an open wound for many years to come i think it will be an open wound for a long time i mean I, living here it really does feel about as close to a civil war as you could get i mean you know i i kind of feel like it's very easy to understand how the english civil war happened and i think in, in slightly less sophisticated civilized times we, we would be resorting to weapons to sort this out um so yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the um, I think one of the big differences between Britain and Sweden is that, um, you know, that we we do in Sweden we kind of like, you know, just to, to tap back into what we were talking about a moment ago, that we allow these characters like a Boris Johnson or a, um, but particularly Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg as well, but Boris Johnson particularly to kind of come to the fore because they're these kind of anti-authoritarian, kind of puckish kind of lords of misrule, you know, and Sweden, to me, as, a, as an outsider, uh, or, you know, who spends a lot of time there, always seems like a society that kind of is much more kind of respectful of authority and, 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 and um, you know, trusting of authority and, um, and where people generally, even now, even I know Sweden has changed a lot, but even now, a sort of sense that people are working together collectively for the greater good. Yeah. You know, in, in Britain, we kind of, we, we, 
elevate, you know, and, and kind of lionize these people who are these essentially destructive anti-authoritarian figures. We have this kind of distrust of authority. We have this love of getting one over, you know, kind of sticking it to the man and, you know, paying as little tax as possible and, yeah. and you know, getting away with things, breaking rules, you know, kind of going along the footpath that we're not really meant to go along. Yeah. All these things. And, and Boris Johnson embodies that. And, and you know, it, it's so destructive, you know, like, you know, thing, things, oh, there's my, <laughs> there's my doorbell. That'll be... <laughs> That, that that there you go. That will be the the police coming to get me now for crimes. But you know, I think that that that's uh, to me strikes me as one of the greatest differences between Britain and Sweden from the outside. That that um, you know, that we respect people who break the rules and get one over on authority, and we don't realise that in in doing that we're kind of making things worse for ourselves. Every time we win a little victory, every time we chip away at the system. We might think it's actually better for ourselves, but somehow collectively it's worse for society and it, it, it is actually dragging everything down, you know, and that if we work together rather than all trying to work against the system, that things might be better, you know. It, it just feels like a, a really massive cultural difference to me, that. And I don't think a figure like Boris Johnson would be respected or, or um, kind of, you know, in, in Sweden in the way he is here or given the platform that he's given. Do you expect Brexit to be reflected in your work in the coming years, or is it something you'd rather just leave behind? I think it's inevitable. I think, you know, I, I sort of find a lot of the things I'm doing now deal with issues of of kind of racism, of, of how we treat people coming into our society and, and of, you know, kind of division. I, I think you can't escape it now, really. Um, I mean, it, it's so hard. N nobody knows how it's going to turn out. And whenever I go to Sweden, I'm constantly being asked by people like, you know, why? Why has this happened? How could this have happened? And a friend, a comedian friend in Sweden came up with the great analogy of it's like trying to um, get rid of a fly buzzing around your face by using a shotgun. Mm. You, know? And, um, you know, it does seem this hugely destructive act that I know to, to almost everybody on the outside is baffling and hard to understand. I mean, we just all hope that it will somehow kind of resolve itself and work itself out because clearly the thing that people voted for and, and you know people voted for that for a whole host of reasons a real spectrum of reasons mm. you know but, but clearly the thing that people voted for is impossible so given that it's impossible and we can't deliver it kind of you know we are hoping that we might be allowed to kind of go back to what we had before but i don't know i mean i, I feel like it's going to be a very very rocky road before we know where we get to I think uh, Brexit may well be being governed by the oldest of Chinese proverbs, may you live in interesting times. Danny Robinson, yeah. thanks very much for talking to me. No, thank you, Phil. A pleasure. There you go. That was Danny Robbins there, writer and broadcaster. You can check out his work by just Googling his name or Googling the cold Swedish winter. That will bring you to the BBC Radio 4 website or Folsom Untold, a five-part series for Audible, which is absolutely brilliant. Fantastic listen altogether. I would have loved to have seen End of the Pier when it was on in the UK last year, but I never got the chance to go over. Hopefully, I'll have that chance to catch it again when it goes on tour in the UK. And if you are in the UK or you happen to be in the UK, I suggest you go and check it out as well because the reviews and the feedback I saw on it was absolutely brilliant. You know, audiences came out of that place with uh, plenty of questions to ask themselves and everybody else. Uh, if you've been listening for this long, here's your reward, okay? 
I'm planning four live podcasts in Dublin in mid-February. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. One of the guests is already booked and confirmed and I would be delighted to hear suggestions from media or cultural figures that you think I should interview on stage, live, for you and your mates and for students and it'll be the best of crack. Details about the venue and tickets and everything else like that will be revealed in due course. But mid-February, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, four live podcasts get involved. Look after yourselves and remember, for everything you read today, ask yourself... Why this? Why now? Be good.